remembering the uh, conventional realities. Uh, this is the 22nd of March. It's the uh, spring equinox. So the days and nights are uh, equal. Uh, yesterday or today. The equinox is in here in England, it's sort of enjoy the, the marked differences in the solstices, winter and summer solstice, and the spring and autumn equinox. These are conventions. You know, we're talking about their natural conditions, but then we give them names, call it equinox, springtime. This is uh, what we call samut, samut satcha, or conventional reality. <coughs> and pointing to this is like, we're not getting rid of conventional reality. We're not ha attack or denial of the importance of a personality, of uh, our character tendencies or anything else. It's not a, a, an effort to annihilate or to diminish or reject, but to see ultimate reality, to know. If we if we don't investigate in this way, then we, we don't know ultimate reality. We're merely caught in the conventional realities. We become creatures of habit, and we suffer according to the praise and blame, success and failure, um, Good health, bad health, and so forth. That that is the nature of conditioned phenomena. It's changing, unsatisfactory. Saying it's unsatisfactory is not a criticism of it. It's a recognition of it that it is no satisfaction in it. You can't sustain conventional reality and depend on. It. You can depend on it changing. Is about all that is possible. So human anguish and suffering and despair and all the rest is because we, we're expecting too much from the conventional world, you know, from our bodies or from somebody else or from the society. We like, we like stability and security and, and have, uh, you know, feel safe and secure with good friends and fair treatment and ideal conditions and physical comfort, privileges and fairness and justice. And so these are the conventions and the desires <coughs> for all the best that the conventional world can offer. But in intuitive awareness, looking into the nature of conventional reality, we see its very nature is instability. So seeking stability in the unstable is uh, kind of futile, isn't it? You're bound for despair. Despair can be the only result if you're looking for certainty, stability, in that which is very nature is insecure and unstable. So stability then isn't a matter of something lacking that you've got to find, but in awakening. And so it's, a, it's an imminent awakening to the nature of conditioned phenomena as unstable.
not by grasping these ideas or these words, but by recognizing, you know, investigating the nature of, you know, as, as your your own grasping, your own samut satcha, your own conventional realities, uh, your, the the body that we call me and mine, or the the uh, emotional habits, or the um, memories, thoughts, tendencies, inclinations that we that we experience through consciousness. We uh, this investigation, looking at them and recognizing their changingness, anicca dukkanata. So then, uh, the, you know, the conventional realities of, say, sometimes it could easily, I could be misunderstood by thinking, you know, I've got a, something against Sakya Ditti, you know, that <laughs> I'm trying to destroy the self. That's not it, you know, it's uh, getting to know it. That which knows Sakya Ditti is not Sakya Ditti, pointing to, uh, to, to point to this awareness so then, the, the sense of a self, the the conventional world that I live in, being a Buddhist monk, being Ajahn Sumedho, being uh, whatever you know, the 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 personality I have, the education I've acquired, the memories and experiences that I've had in monastic life, these are not meant to to just reinforce Sakaya Ditti, but they can be used for in skillful ways for for compassionate means compassionate ends so I, you know in the monastic life the point is like the the in the the legendary buddha you know after his enlightenment used his conventional realities the samuttaja for for the welfare of others and so he used his his intelligence, his physical body, his abilities to teach, to set up the sangha, to help others. And so this is it wasn't Sakyaditi that was doing it. It wasn't because he he had a kind of personal need or desire to to you know on a, on a personal level, but he could use his talents, his his gifts, his uh, conventional realities in skillful ways. So then it's like the sila, do good, refrain from doing bad. You know, the Brahma Viharas, metta karuna mudita upeka. But then there's no sakyaditi in it, in terms of there's no delusion. There's still the the samutsacha, but it's it's uh, used out of compassion rather than out of personal desire and ignorance. So then um, reflect on it: consciousness, emptiness, sound of silence. So there's where the word consciousness then is. It's just a, it's an English word, but it's used to remind to remind us to be just. Switch on the light, you know. Observe. This is—we're all experiencing consciousness at this very moment. It's not a thought. You know, so it's not not kind of grasping 
views and opinions about consciousness, definitions of it that you've acquired from books, but recognizing that this is it. Then I, you know, for me, this this sense of sound of silence would be very strong. Now, the sound of silence doesn't have any personal message. It doesn't doesn't it isn't conventional reality. It's not, you know, it doesn't have any kind of uh, quality that that one can claim. It has this sense of continuity or flowing. It's like like a sound or of a stream or background. It it has no you know it's like space. It it isn't uh, doesn't it isn't high or low or fantastic or precious, but it's continuous. It has its expansiveness, and it doesn't you know one could be bored with it on an emotional level. You can. That's so boring, you know. Listening to the sound of silence, just this for an hour, you know, and that's an emotional reaction to it, isn't it? You can <coughs> develop aversion towards it, but if you if you don't, if you just tune in, it's a very useful, skillful means because it's consciousness, but there's no self in it. You know, it isn't pretty or ugly or me or mine or male or female or anything. It is just this. It has no race. It's not European or Asian. Or <laughs> you know, these things, if they arise, then they they fade away into it, and that they dissolve into the sound of silence. Any any concepts that arise, you know, like me and mine and I am and I am not and I like and I don't like and right and wrong, good and bad. You know, like in, uh, I was brought up in this, um, in, the, in the Christian religion, you know, which is, which is very much based on right and wrong. So in my monastic life, uh, you know, becoming a Buddhist, I still have this strong conditioning and, and and easily intimidated on a personal level with the concepts of right and wrong, because in my Christian background, these were these are very important to be right, righteousness to be right, and wrong was bad, and you had to dispel the wrong, the evil, and hold on to the right, the good. So this is emotionally, you know. This is, uh, uh, from childhood, my emotional life was built around right and wrong. These are strong, uh, bringing up strong emotions. And a fear, because fear of being wrong, personally, you know, there's tremendous anxiety and fear about I might be wrong, or going wrong, going off, doing something wrong, being looked down on and saying, he's wrong, you're wrong, and, and then this, Need this almost uh, insidious obsession about having to be right. So one becomes, you know, caught in this, in, in kind of this fear uh, about evil and wrong, going wrong, and and easily intimidated when somebody righteous, more righteous than I am, comes along and say, "You're wrong, tomato. 
the right view, the right interpretation of scriptural authority is this. And then on a personal level, a succidity level, you know, oh God, maybe I'm wrong. Because the, the self-view, the succidity, easily goes into doubt. You know, somebody, some very confident authority comes and tells me I'm wrong. On an emotional level, you know, I feel very threatened or uncertain or unstable. And because this is such a strong conditioning from cultural conditioning, then, you know, it's, it's, uh, I've investigated it in my monastic life. Because it, you know, it certainly, certainly brings a lot of suffering, you know, around vinaya and around rules and and views of righteousness and and uh, all this kind of laws about laws and keeping laws and being honest and not telling lies and and uh, all this transparency, responsibility, accountability, duty, loyalty want to be right. I want to be on the right side. So, so this, this uh, turning on the floodlight then, the sati sampachanya, this need to be right and fear of being wrong, then is, I'm beginning to, I, I began to look at it, to observe the feeling of it. You know, observing this, this kind of, the doubt that would arise, am I, am I right or wrong on this? Or am I, you know, fear of being wrong? And, uh, and, uh, Self-critical person oftentimes assumes the worst one. You know, I mean, it's easy for on on the sakyaditi level to assume that I'm wrong. If somebody else comes across in a very confident, righteous way, maybe I am wrong. Maybe I've got a, you know, maybe I haven't. Maybe I'm deluding myself. Maybe I have a subconscious need. You know, maybe there's something deep down inside some latent force that I haven't recognized that's that driving me in the wrong direction. I remember used to when in my generation when we discovered psychology, you know, back in the fifties when I went to university. I was scared to death of it. I know you psychology because I might find something out <laughs> that I don't would rather not know. You know, this idea that maybe there's something evil or something latent, you know, unacknowledged, unconscious, some, something horrible inside me, some monster or demon, latent deep down inside that I'd rather not know about. <laughs> <laughs> and if I, if I do psychology, I might, it might come, it might rise up, you know, might be overwhelmed with madness or demonic energies or evil acts because it's the unknown you know so the better to, to to avoid it you know not to 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 try to live your life in a way in which you you kind of avoid looking at that side because at least you've got the delusion that you're okay or things are okay like this but all the possibilities in any of us isn't it the, the possibility, the potential for evil forces latent inside us, m craziness, madness, deep down inside. And that is 
Sakyaditi, isn't it? This, I'm creating this fear through thinking. And then the, then the kind of, <coughs> kind of pusillanimous tendency to, well, I'll just go along with what's normal and conventional, just fit in to this system, to this Christian system, to this social order, to the to what is right, considered normal and acceptable in society. I'll just make myself fit into that because it's safe and you get praised for it. The other's too threatening to be a rebel or to, to take a risk because this horrible demon might pop out and then you're then you're you know, you you've gone mad and you'll go to hell when you die. So, you know, there's kind of pusillanimous tendency. Now, pusillanimous means most people don't know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) And I rather like the word. (laughs) It it means like like kind of moral coward or or kind of, uh, you know, small-minded. Pusil in Latin means and anima anima is like hearts or mind small mindedness or cowardliness or you know I better take the safe way because well you know it's, uh, I won't get you know I won't I won't rock the boat I won't take a risk I won't stick my neck out rise above the rampart I'll just just keep my head down. <laughs> And fit in, you know. So there's a this pusillanimous tendency to, to just conform and fit in because it sa- seems safe. Because there is a, a risk, isn't it? It's a risk becoming a monk or a nun. You're taking a risk with your life. What if it's all a bunch of rubbish? <laughs> what if? What if it's not true? Buddhism is just, <laughs> you know, and then. You know, becoming, you know, living the life of a Buddhist samana is all about taking risks, isn't it? Going into the unknown. And especially in countries like this where, you you know, it's not a Buddhist, uh, it's not set up for Buddhism. It's not socially uh, kind of part of the system. It's not, you know, we're not despised or anything. There's allowance for oddities and eccentricity in here in England. They put up with us, <laughs> but, but we're not kind of part of the establishment, uh, and most of our parents would rather we weren't. You know, they never thought my son or daughter would become a Buddhist monk or not. You can imagine your son or daughter becoming a junkie, <laughs> a prostitute, anything, but a Buddhist nun. <laughs> That's totally out way out in left field, isn't it? It's just not part of the of the expectation of parents for their sons or daughters. So the fear of the unknown, you know, on the on the on the conventional level, uh, just conformity, going along with the system, uh, you know, these, these kind of moral questions of of the past of just going along with with uh, society's uh, corruption and vices and, and delusions. 
Like we've seen that, you know, in the people just caught into the conventions of a society, afraid of taking the risk of sticking your neck out. And so they, this is, you know, this on the conventional level, Sakya Ditti is very much like that, you know. It's, one could, could make a stand kind of rebel against the system, but it's still Sakya Ditti. But at least a little more alive than the other. <laughs> I've always liked the, kind of admired the anarchist uh, tendencies. <laughs> But the uh, the conforming tendencies, even though I certainly have them, are you know the the it seemed like to when I was young before I started meditating uh, to be bound into this 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 n- narrow system of righteousness that was part of my social conditioning. It seemed suffocating to me. To just fit in in the way, the safe way, go the safe way, what your parents wanted, what your social position expected of you and so forth, to to just fit in and go along with it. You know, I felt, I, I felt strong uh, sense of being suffocated, of crushed, of being, you know, smothered in this in this uh, dreariness of of safety and conformity. So there's something, you know, in me, some spark of life that was willing to take risks. Now in the in this uh Satisampatanya or intuitive awareness, then this this problem of right and wrong is resolved. And this is a this is, you know, the mode of perception changes because if you're just in the dualistic structure of right and wrong then it's always you know you're caught in between these two opposites if it's it, if it's right then it's not wrong and if it's wrong it's not right it's logical isn't it you're either for us or against us as george bush said you know you're either with us the the righteous Christian side, or you're against us. You're with those Al Qaeda terrorists. It's very black and white. It's quite simple, isn't it? It's quite simple to 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 make life uh, very dualistic, and and then to in the sense of righteousness rise up. The the Americans are right. These uh, Islamic terrorists are wrong. And then notice how that intimidates after the 9-11 incident in, you know, where um, the trade towers were demolished. The the kind of reaction, the righteous indignation. uh, How could they do that? These are evil people. These are evil demons these islamic terrorists and so they, you know then the then the tendency is to anyone that that has any sympathy for islamic terrorists is wrong is a, is a, is a it belongs to them so if you showed any 
any kind of wanting to understand the problem, you are probably going to be punished for it in some way or rejected. There's no no room for reflection on it. You either were for or against. And that's how, you know, the fear, intimidation, uh, all that, that, those kind of experiences, how we, we react if we're, not, if we're not awake and aware and if we're not mindful of how things really are. So this is... Uh, this sense of right and wrong is is uh, needs to be understood. Or this dualism, it can be good or evil, but the, but the words right and wrong were particularly particularly powerful for me. And I've noticed in in people that want to always have to be right. You meet some Buddhist monks or nuns or lay people or Christians or any you know you find it any anywhere or in Islam, this need to be right, an absolute obsession about being right, righteousness, and proving the other wrong. And for me to affirm my righteousness, you know, then I have to make sure that that anyone that doesn't agree is wrong. So this is one. This is what this is all created through Sakya Ditti Silabata Baramasa, isn't it? It's it's the fetters operating. So one can be convinced, you know, the righteousness of genocide. Let's kill off all the Islamic terrorists and anyone we suspect might be an Islamic terrorist or anyone that looks like an Islamic terrorist. You know, so it, it, it primes you, doesn't it? it? It kind of sets the standard for conditioning. You start seeing Islamic terrorists everywhere. Remember uh, Chitters one time was a Mexican, young Mexican uh, man was there, you know, and he had a beard, dark beard, dark hair, and a backpack. <laughs> and, and so he was he had been at Chitters a week or so and he was going to London and I I said, you know, you could pass for an Islamic terrorist, <laughs> <laughs> you know, with, the, with that beard and that backpack. He kind of laughed. He didn't seem to bother him. But of course, nothing happened. But this is how, you know, when we, this is how that, when, you, when you're unreflective, when you're just caught in prejudices and, and perceptions without any ability to see outside them, then one just reacts, you know. You start seeing Islamic terrorists everywhere. You get paranoid. And anyone who, I remember when uh, suicide, you know, the suicide bombers are evil. These people that are, you know, that commit suicide by uh, tying bombs onto their bodies and going in and blowing themselves up. Now, this can only be evil. These suicide bombers are, there's, you know, they're just bad people. And that was the party line, you know, suicide bombers were evil. But yet, when you start reflecting, anybody that would do that, you know, usually they're quite young. You know, so you, when you get older, I don't think you're prone to do such things. But, but when you're young, you're quite, you can be quite idealistic. You know, self-sacrifice. You know, sacrifice for your 
for a cause. It's kind of it's kind of inspiring to sacrifice your life for your country or for your cause or for your family. So, so suicide bombers, you know, what what why would people do that anyway? What is it that that makes people uh, kill themselves in such a way? And then, of course, you can say they're just evil. They're just evil people. That's that's the very righteous position. It's easy and simple. But then, when somebody, I remember in, here in Britain, some some member of the House of Commons started saying, "Well, maybe you know, we need to understand why they do this. You know, why would we?" And the and she was condemned. Sympathy for for suicide bombers means you're against us. <laughs> and she wasn't, you know, kind of promoting suicide bombing. She's just curious, you know, wondering why people do such things. So notice that this this questioning state, you know, where you you're looking, investigating, wanting to, you know, this this interest in understanding. This is this is beginning to awaken. We're beginning to to question or awaken. Question conventional reality. Question the conditioning process. Question right and wrong as it's dictated to us through uh, our societies. So then you can you can you know in the life here you begin to observe your own fear of being wrong or or uh, wanting to be right wanting somebody else to tell you what the right thing to do is that's another one isn't it tell me what's right because I can't you know I, I don't trust myself enough to figure it out and uh, and so you know what what is what did Theravada's Buddhists say Buddhists say is right and uh, the Thai Forest tradition, what is right? And uh, and we want the best, you know. We tend to we can become very cultish. We're saying we're we're uh, the real Buddhists, you know. Pali scriptures, four noble truths. We're the the real thing. And those others, you know, I suspect them. I doubt them. You know, those new cults or Mahayana or things like that. We can easily you know, hold on to our own sense of being better or more right or the the epitome of righteousness, the safe the safe thing, the orthodox. Now in in uh, now these are human tendencies. I'm not it's not that I've never you know, I've certainly experienced these myself, so I know, you know, I know what they feel like. To be caught in doubt and Wanting somebody to tell me, wanting an authority, an, an enlightened master, uh, somebody that you know really knows what I should do, how I should live my life, what is right and what is wrong. Please tell me. And and because there's this pusillanimous side of me too, moral cowardice. I don't want to be wrong. If 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 I if I believe, you know. Somebody else, some authority, somebody I really respect and trust tells me what's right. Then I can always say, well, Ajahn Chah said so. Oh, you know, the Buddha said so. <laughs> and so we quote, you know, we quote from the great teachers and the, the authority figures 
And so, we, because we don't, we still, you know, we we might be grasping their what they're teaching in the without knowing what we're doing. But then that's still suffering. It's still the first noble truth rises up to warn us. This fear, this this uh, cowardliness, this this. Uh, mistrusting of ourselves, not daring, uh, you know, wanting to, wanting somebody else to take charge of our lives, you know, guide us and, and tell us and teach us, is, uh, you know, is a still sakyaditi, because it's quite frightening, isn't it, to, to take the risk of really awakening and looking, observing, and then if, if one is caught in this kind of state of pusillanimity, then uh, it's worth looking at. Not can be condemned or trying to suppress it, but just recognize fear, anxiety, worry, emotional uh, instability, um, doubt. So the third, the third uh, fetter, is wichikecha, uh, which is translated as doubt, uncertainty. And so this uncertainty, you know, is really, it's kind of, is to be really open to and recognized, not just trying to be suppressed by grasping uh, certainty or views of certainty or, or uh, you know, the, the righteous teachings of others. So this, this doubt, this uh, uncertainty, instability, vichikita. Now this opens to sound of silence. If you really allow yourself to doubt, but not and give up the you know trying to get rid of doubt, what happens when when doubt arises? Is your your thinking mind stops for a moment? Am I right? Am I, am I, am I, th- what I'm saying this morning, is this right? Is this real Dhamma? Am I, te- am I teaching some kind of new philosophy or is this really what the Buddha taught? Doubt, isn't it? Now when you're aware, you're aware of that, you know, the, the doubt. And then doubt, it stops the thinking mind for a moment. Who am I? You know, the Ramana Maharishi technique. Who am I? Asking yourself, who am I? What does that do when you start, when you ask yourself, who am I? Is from that moment, then the, the, the thinking stops. That's what questions do. Questions are doubts, aren't they? Now, you're observing this. You're not, you're not trying to figure out who am I and then I am Ajahn Tomato. I know that <laughs> on a conventional, you know, conventional level. Zamud Sancha, I'm still willing to be Ajahn Tomato. In this monastery, I'm quite willing to be that <coughs> on a conventional level. So it's not a matter of finding out, you know, my name or my, who am I, but it's like a, a skillful means to observe not knowing or the non-plusing, non-plus, where you just, where the thinking mind can't, can't <coughs> go. It suddenly packs up, stops. So that's where, like in koans, those Zen koans, and, you know, impossible kind of 
questions you ask yourself. What was my original face before I was born? <laughs> Try to figure that one out intellectually. And that's not the point, is it? To, to have a, a neat little answer for the question. But to use that, that kind of koan technique for mindfulness. To not just get caught into the logical thinking mind or the, the wanting to know the answers, have definitions, have authority, back up your own view. To quote scripture and the Dalai Lama and Lung Po Cha and whatnot to, to support your own m Buddhist views because you're still caught in could be wrong, you know. If, uh, the Dalai Lama, he's trustworthy. Ajahn Chah, well, these are the great ones. But me, who am I? Might be wrong, in fact. <laughs> and so this doubt, this doubt is, uh, you know, something that, that, that I've investigated over years. I discovered this when I was a Samanera. Just doubt was my, was the biggest <coughs> obstruction that I, uh, that I could see in my life. I'm you know, in terms of personal character, personal tendencies, being a skeptical person, a doubter, by na you know, this kind of a character tendency. So using that, how to use that for awareness. So then in the awareness, sound of silence, there's room for right and wrong together at the same moment. <laughs> This is one of my insights years ago. <laughs> so it's not a matter of choosing. They both belong, right and wrong. Not <laughs> and none are absolute. There's no absolute right, no absolute wrong. Because in this spaciousness of awareness, like this is what we recognize, it's spacious. It's infinite. It's unlimited. No boundaries. Consciousness. It has no boundaries in it. But it's certainly active, isn't it? It's operating right now. Consciousness is operating. And when we recognize that consciousness is this, awareness, awareness consciousness, wisdom, then, we, then, then the, this dualistic conflict resolves itself. Good, bad, right, wrong. The, the 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 opposites of the condition of conditions, you know, this is birth and death and all that the conditioned realm is seen is we can we we're the knower of conditioned phenomena, not the conditions anymore. There's the knowing. It's pure it's universal intelligence. It's not personal. It's not knowing about this or how holding to a theory it's it's direct it's insight it's jnana dasana it's it's profound knowing it's not just knowing about or having views about consciousness or right and wrong so then we call it transcending but notice any words that we use uh tend to cause division so you know like even the words the unconditioned and the conditioned so these are, you know, this is a limitation of language. Recognized language is a dualistic function. It's it's limited to dualism. And that's why you can't be liberated through thinking. 
you know, because you you're stuck always in the samsara of dualism with with if you touch to the thinking process. So it's not you know, like this isn't, isn't an attack on thinking, but it's put notice the limitation of thought of the thinking process. So that we we recognize that to that you know, just trying to solve everything, have answers for every question, solutions for every problem is still thinking and and it leads towards always never being quite certain. Or our certitude is based on grasping, not on understanding. So we grasp things in a way that because, you know, the authorities say this is right, then we stand up for righteousness and we have confidence and certainty because we're grasping a righteous position. But it's not liberating. So being right isn't liberation. <laughs> but right and wrong, you know, they these these perceptions, they arise and cease in consciousness, don't they? If you if you recognize, realize consciousness is what what we really are, just this, which is impersonal, then right and wrong can come and go in it. We're not it's like the way of no preferences. We're not taking sides in terms of action and speech. You know, like the sila is to do good, refraining from doing bad things. But good and bad are conditions changing in consciousness. So in terms of participating in the samut satcha, in the society that we're living in, and the sangha life, and, you know, relationship, relating to, to each other, or to the environment, to the society, uh, the, we, we determine to do the good and refrain from doing the bad things. But but these are not fixed. Good and bad are not absolute, and this is where we you know we have to trust our sati sampachanya to respond to contingencies, to conditions that we're experiencing in ways that are responsive rather than just reactive. So our sila isn't just based on fear and and holding to views about good and bad, but being able to respond to situations, the changing conditions of the present moment. And this, of course, is sati sampachanya, sati panya. So sila, dana sila in the traditional Theravada style, dana generosity. These are foundations, kind of like the, the they're, in living I within this human realm, within these human bodies, as human individuals in this society, you know, this leads towards, uh, it's a foundation for pavana, for meditation, for insight. Because like dana, generosity, is, is always a sense of unselfishness. You know, the selfish tendency, me first, and uh, it's mine, and there's a tendency, you know, for, to grasp things and possess. And dana is a kind of beautiful ability that, that we can develop through sharing, giving, not just hoarding up everything for oneself. So this is, this is you know, in Buddhist countries, 
Thailand, Sri Lanka, place like that, you find that the dana is very much a part of the social uh, conditioning. It's just it's, it's part of their social ideal, their cultural, their culture is based, is, is actually founded on dana, on generosity, sharing. So it's, uh, you know, this isn't, it can be taken personally as sakyaditi, like I'm, I, you know, uh, how many temples I've built and how much money I've given to the Sangha. <laughs> no, I mean, we can misuse dana also. I mean, it's, uh, that's not the point, is it? It's not, not to create sakyaditi, but to get beyond one's selfish obsessions, me first and, and I don't care about the rest. It's a kind of foundation for happiness in the world. Joy comes from sharing and giving, not from hoarding up everything and uh, holding on to everything. You know, so dana, sila, morality, taking responsibility for action and speech. How to live in the society which is, you know, in which we uh, are responsible for how we live, you know, we're not just thinking of of oneself and just following one's particular impulses of the moment. So we can have impulse to to harm somebody, but with the with like the five precepts is a, is a reminder not to not to act on it or speak, not to say the insulting remark or to commit the uh, aggressive action, even though we might feel it. And in terms of sati-sampatanya, we recognize that we can still have the impulse without acting on it. That's sati-sampatanya operating. Because of the um, the boundaries, say, of vinaya, see them as, as helpful limitations rather than personal uh, challenges or, you know, trying to make yourself ungreedy or you know, trying to hold on to it in the in a personal way. How to use vinya discipline for awareness rather than just bend into it, conform to it, uh, because that's what, you know, you're expected to do. And to oh, be aware of that, you know, of the, the social pressures or how one perceives the system, how one projects one's own fears and desires onto the conventional world around us, you know, b- by awakening to that, then we we begin to, uh, you know, develop uh, or use the conventions that we have for awareness, for awakening, rather than conditioning ourselves. Then bhavana, dhanasila bhavana, bhavana is cultivating the path. Meditation, but the English word meditation is a kind of you know includes any kind of mental act, mental discipline, doesn't it? Just, uh, but it, but in terms of Buddhist meditation, the pawana. Now this is the insight into the fourth noble truth: cultivating, developing awareness. So when we talk about the fourth noble truth, samaditi, right view, it's not righteous view. We're not holding to a viewpoint that we grasp out of the scripture. But it's an understanding that comes through insight. 
and and then we see the path or the 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 eightfold path is not you know these are just eightfold path is not really you know eight is just a a convention but it, it what it amounts to is awareness cultivating developing awareness in daily life so that pavana is real pavana is is when we you know from the sotapanna level stream entry now what does that do to you do you I'm not a stream enterer. Do you do you dare be a stream enterer, any of you? Or is that you're afraid of maybe, you know? Because on the Sakyaditi level, it's rather, you know, how dare we assume? Because stream entry can be elevated to such a high level that and on a personal, you know, if you're a self-critical person, you're a bit frightened of it. Even though you'd like to have it, have another, you know, mark on your success chart. I'm a stream enterer. <laughs> so and so said I was. <laughs> I've got a certificate. I used to pass out certificates in Thailand years ago. Stream entry certificates. But notice that this stream entry or sotapanna is is seen through these three fetters. These are the obstructions to to the path to seeing the path uh, of awareness. Because awareness then is, this word awareness or sati, sampatanya, <coughs> you know, it's, it's a natural ability. It's not created. It's not personal. Consciousness is not personal. Consciousness is, is all the time. It's infinite. The self you create in consciousness comes and goes and changes according to conditions. But the awareness, you know, this, the different mode of percept perceiving is from awareness rather than from love and hate, like and dislike, fear and desire. So it's, a, it's that shift. So de- developing or cultivating or pavana is cultivating or developing, being mindful in daily life, you know, in the movements and changing conditions, spring equinox, morning, noon, evening, feeling healthy, feeling sickly, success and failure, and all the changing conditions of worldly, of the, of the world, but mindful, where we are this mindfulness rather than this person that's, that's, uh, so, so kind of intimidated by right and wrong and fear and desire. Because you can, you know, that which is aware of fear and desire is not fear and desire. 